Well, as you've heard repeatedly already this morning, this is the first Sunday in the season in the church calendar called Lent, and it is a time of getting ready for the celebration of Christ's death on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter morning. I love the way the devotional guide, Journey to the Cross, it's one of those great resources that's on the website for you to use, a daily devotional guide. It says, uh, the journey of land is to immerse ourselves in this grand story so that it might increase our appreciation of Easter and love for Jesus. May we mourn the darkness in our hearts and rejoice in the light of God who came into the world to save us. And that's a good way to think about what we're doing here as a church family during this season. Over the next six Sundays during Lent, we will be immersing ourselves in this grand story by listening in on Jesus' last words to the church. It's a teaching that happens on one evening called Maundy Thursday on the church calendar. It is the night before the cross on Good Friday. And over the next six weeks, all of the teaching that we do comes from this one Thursday evening. Um, The teaching is called Jesus' Farewell Discourse And it's found in your Bibles in John 13 through 17. If you want to find your way to John 13, that's where we'll begin this morning. Um, Today, uh, we'll look at that section. It immediately follows the Lord's Supper in the chronology of Jesus last week. So as you find your way there, let me pray for us one more time and we'll we'll open the word, word together. Lord Jesus, be kind and merciful to us now. We really do need to hear from you, and we need faith to believe that what you say to us is for our good. So help us, Lord, now by your word and your spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. So John 13, we're going to start towards the back end of the chapter in verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So even on first hearing, there's lots of glory in those first couple of verses, like five times in the first two verses of this section, the Son is glorified and the Father is glorified and they're glorified in each other and back and forth it goes. And Jesus says that this glorifying act that's about to happen is coming soon, right? Um, In fact, it will transpire that very weekend. Jesus, when he talks about his glory, he's talking first about his death, which is to follow the very next morning on Good Friday, and his resurrection that is to follow on the third day, along with ultimately his ascension back to heaven, which is about 40 days after all of this. Um, This collective work of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension back to heaven, um, these, these things take him on a path that the disciples cannot follow him to, at least not, not yet. But if you notice, the section that I read starts with kind of a cryptic reference in verse 31, when he had gone out. And the previous verses in our chapter 
tip us off that that one who leaves, the he who had gone out, was not Jesus, but it was Judas Iscariot. And he had left the upper room where they had the Lord's Supper in order to betray Jesus. And if you go back one more verse, verse 30 puts it this way. After receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. And that's a dark, dark symbol. It's Judas' departure that seems to put irrevocably in motion the events of those final hours leading up to the cross. And from this point on, the events unfold with such surety that in Jesus' mind, he speaks of his glorification as if it had already happened, past tense, right? Um, It's that sure. The cross is that sure at this point in Jesus' mind. There is no turning back, no turning back for Jesus. And everything at this point in the story seems to slow down. Um, John's going to spend the better part of the next five chapters chronicling the events of this one Thursday evening. And, you know, it's, it, as a result, it's our tradition as a church family during Holy Week, right before Easter, we take an entire service that week on Thursday night to reflect on the events of that one sacred evening. It is the most important weekend in all of Scripture, probably the most important weekend in all of history. Professor Dale Bruner says, what happens this weekend, before, especially during, and immediately after this weekend, determines human time as no other single event since creation. Time splits into B.C. and A.D., or or B.C.E. and C.E., by the power of this man's world-cleaving life death and life again. So this is the scriptural terrain that we're going to travel together over the next six weeks. Jesus' farewell discourse. Verse 33, Jesus continues, he says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So in just a matter of hours from this time Jesus is speaking, um, he will no longer be with them by means of the cross. Judas' departure sets all this in motion, and it turns Jesus' mind towards something that is the utmost importance for his friends that's, that are about to be left alone without him. Okay. So Jesus is faced with imminent death and departure from his friends and the importance of what he is about to say. I don't think it can be overstated. So this, what Jesus is about to say is kind of edge of your seat kind of stuff. It's note-taking stuff, like jot down every word he says kind of stuff. It's the kind of stuff you always remember and never forget. What is it that is on the heart and mind of Jesus as he prepares to go to the cross and leave this world and the friends that he loves? Listen in to verse 34 and 35. This is what Jesus has on his heart and mind. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, did you catch it? Right? 
Jesus says it three times just to make sure that we won't miss it, that we can't miss it. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. That we would love each other is what leaps to the front of Jesus' mind when Judas slips out that door. Make sure that you love one another. Loving one another, loving other believers, loving the church is the most important thing on Jesus' heart and mind as he stares down the cross. And most practically, that does mean loving the church. It means loving your church. It means loving the people in this room. Now that's, Jesus' teaching here is not to the exclusion of loving others outside of this room, outside of the church. Elsewhere, Jesus has powerful instruction about loving neighbor and even loving enemies. But here in this highly charged moment, on the edge of his betrayal, the night before the cross, his focus is calling us to love the church. And we should be clear here, because Jesus is really clear, right? This is a command. He doesn't call it, guys, I have for you a new suggestion. I have for you a new option to consider or a new possibility to entertain. Now, Jesus says, it's a new command. Our Lord, our King has given us a new command and it is to love one another. We must do this. We must be about the business of loving one another. It is the highest of priorities for Jesus as he strides towards the cross. And so for those of us who follow Jesus and his good words for us, it has to be our priority as well. And we shouldn't be surprised when it is hard. You don't get commands for things that are easy, right? At, at your house, if you have kids, chore lists don't include things like eat your favorite snack now or watch your favorite show for an hour, okay? That's not what commands are for. Commands are for the difficult challenges and loving the church. Honestly, it frequently fits in that category. The church is full of people who are either really loud or painfully shy. They're desperately needy or quite full of themselves. They're fashion challenged or fashion obsessed. That's the church, right? We can be hard to be around, let alone love. This is why it's a command. Don't be surprised when it's a challenge. And Jesus says it's a new command. But the command to love one another has been around since the early pages of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus is likely quoting here the book of Leviticus um, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then John has been really impressed by Jesus' words here. And so he, he's gonna write in a letter in the New Testament called 1 John, and it's like a commentary on Jesus' new command, especially the third and fourth chapters. And there, and here in the second chapter as well, he writes about the oldness and newness of this command. He says, beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, 
but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So what is new is that Jesus, the true light, has come into our world and he's shown us how to love. And we are to love one another as he have, has now loved us. So the content of the commandment is not really new, but the pattern is we are to love like Jesus. So what shape is the pattern of love that Jesus gives us? And if you think about Jesus and his thick-headed disciples, things like this come to my mind at least. He loved patiently, undeservedly, sacrificially, costly, unselfishly, humbly, faithfully, honestly, gladly, fiercely, through sorrow and suffering. Well, we could go on and on, really. But the immediate context for what Jesus is saying here highlights certain aspects of his love even above the others. Jesus loves humbly. Jesus loves undeservedly. And our chapter begins this way in John 13, the very first chapter, rather it says, um, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world, this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And then down in verse four, Jesus rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So on this same night, this is Jesus' love enacted. It's kind of like an acted out parable. Jesus is teaching here how we should love. It's the shape of servanthood that is beneath you. It's the shape of care for the undeserving. See, none of those whose feet were washed by Jesus were deserving. The same night, all would either betray or flee or deny. And Jesus loved them all, all of them, all of us. Right? And in that very first verse of our chapter, chapter 13, John writes that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. This act of foot washing was really just that. It was kind of an act, not in a fake way, but in a foretelling way that points to something far greater. The act of washing undeserving disciples' feet pointed to Jesus' greater undeserved act of love he was about to undertake, dying on the cross for terrible sinners like you and like me. Paul writes about it when he says in Romans 5, while we we're still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this, Jesus is saying, is how and whom we are to love. We are to serve the undeserving, and this morning, they're sitting all around you, right? The undeserving. They're everywhere here. The membership role of the church is the definition of undeserving, right? 
This all matters so very much to Jesus in part because he believes the mission of the church depends upon it. Look at the next verse, verse 35. By this, he says, that is the way you love one another, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that last phrase always kind of surprises me. Right? It's not what I would have expected Jesus to say. I would have expected Jesus to say, all people will know you're my disciples if you have love for me. That's what I would have expected Jesus to say. But that isn't what he says. He says the way that we are marked as Christians is the way we love one another. But turns out those two circles are not as exclusive as I, as I thought. Love for Jesus and, and love for one another. Think of it this way. I've introduced you all to a lady before. This is our dog who lives at our house. Um, she belongs to my son Josiah who, who lives with us. Um, she's a wonderful, wonderful, high energy uh, two-year-old puppy. And uh, she's an emotional support animal, literally. She's absolutely awesome. And I've really grown to love this puppy because uh, I'm a dog person, right? I, I like dogs. Um, cats, I can take or leave, but I like dogs. And this is a really fun dog. Uh, you can see this is one of the ways we play together. Yeah. Like I said, she's an emotional support animal. We're not sure what emotion she supports. <laughs> but her craziness, though, and she is crazy. We, we call her Lady. I think that's her middle name. Her first name is actually Crazy. Um, that, her, her craziness, her wildness, along with the destruction of carpet and furniture and such, has somehow failed to endear her uh, to my wife in the same way that she's endeared to me. Um, Steph, I could, I could safely say, is not a dog person, right? She's probably not even a pet, pet person like that. But in, honestly, in the almost two years that Lady's been part of our family, Steph has actually grown to love Lady as best as a non-dog person can. Um, and it's not really that Lady has endeared herself to Steph all that much, though Small measures of that happen, mostly when Lady is either dead tired or asleep. But um, Steph loves Lady because she loves Josiah. See, uh, love Josiah, you love his crazy dog, right? That seems to be the operating principle. And this seems to be the way love commonly works. Think about it. If your son takes up baseball and he loves it, or your daughter takes up cello and she loves it, what do you find your heart doing? You begin to love baseball. You begin to love cello. I am partial to Duke basketball, sadly today, um, <laughs> because my wife is a Duke basketball fan. I, I'm inclined towards the Dallas Cowboys because all of my sons, my three sons, are... Dallas Cowboys fans. This is kind of how love works in our hearts. And so, the way we love Jesus back is by loving what he loves. By loving whom he loves. 
And without dispute, without question, Jesus really loves the church. He really loves you all. And this, by loving one another, by loving the people Jesus loves, is how we love Jesus back. Which, by the way, is a great question for shaping your Christian life. How do I love Jesus back? By loving those that he loves. And so when Jesus says that the mark of a Christian is love for church folk, he is essentially saying that that mark is also the mark of someone who loves him. Because the one is wholly caught up with the other. Love for Jesus' people indicates love for Jesus himself. It's how we love him back. Love Jesus, love his church. They're inseparable. Though many try to separate them these days, they are inseparable. And John was deeply impacted by this. And I told you, he wrote kind of a commentary on this command in 1 John, especially chapters 3 and 4. Listen to what he writes repeatedly about the inseparability of loving God and loving your brother or your sister in Christ. In 1 John 3, he says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In chapter 4, verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. A little farther in chapter 4 and verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So our legitimacy as followers of Jesus hinges in the eyes of the world and the eyes of God, it seems, on whether or not we love his people, whether or not we love the church. And the mission of the church is at stake here. We will be dismissed by the world as legitimate followers and spokespeople for Jesus if we don't love each other. You know, I commonly run across this statement in uh, articles, I ran across one this week, uh, that says that the main thing that brings missionaries home from the field is not illness or lack of money or discouragement even. It is, the number one thing is conflict with other missionaries. How can that possibly be? If the night before Jesus submits to the cross, he underscores and highlights, not just these three times, but if you take his broader commands in this farewell discourse that relate to obedience and the love of God, seven times he's going to say it. That loving and obeying him are linked inseparably and his new command is that we love one another. How can missionaries not get along? How can that be? How can it be here? We've had people in this room worshiping on other sides of the room who cannot bring themselves to speak to one another. How can this be? Jesus says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
You know, there's some oft-quoted old dead guys who had things to say about the way the church has loved in the past that are really beautiful. One is a guy named Tertullian, a good name for your next child. He says, it is mainly the deeds of love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. See, they say, see how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. And then he says, one in mind and soul, we do not hesitate to share our earthly goods with one another. All things are common among us, and this is important, except our wives. Okay. <laughs> a little caveat there. There's another guy, Marcus Felix. He says, they love each other almost before they even meet. So it's not because they're lovable, because they haven't met, but it's because they're in Christ. This is who Jesus longs for us to be. It is the shape our love for him is to take. The church ought to be the most loving place on earth. And I know some of you are saying, that hasn't been my experience. Not even here at North Wake. And I, I want you to know I am truly and terribly sorry if that has been your experience of the church, especially here. But I hope you can hear me. Um, those of you who've experienced church hurt and it's been devastating, I, I hope you can hear me when I say that when you say that, you have Jesus' new command a bit backwards, right? Because Jesus does not say, just as I have loved you, you also are to be loved. It's not what he says. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love He wants our first concern to be how we are loving the church, not how is the church loving me, as important as that is. And um, I don't want to diminish that, but Jesus' first concern is are you loving the church? Now Peter, if you've read much about Peter, as you might expect, he has a response uh, to Jesus' teaching, and that's in the closing verses of our passage. In verse 36, Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times, Peter. I love Dale Bruner's paraphrase of Jesus' response to Peter. You are going to lay down your life for me, Jesus queries, in what appears to be genuine astonishment. Peter, you have the whole thing upside down, we can almost hear Jesus saying. I am laying down my life for you. I tried to show you this at the foot washing a little while ago, and you only belatedly got it then if you got it at all. How many times do I have to tell you? You are not the hero in this story. You are going to become perilously close to being a villain in it. And Peter, he misses the whole point of the command, it seems. Instead, he focuses exclusively on the intrigue of Jesus' departure. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, I got to love one another. Yeah, 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 got it. Well, what's this about you leaving and I can't come? What's that about? You know, we can miss it too. This love one another stuff, I mean, it's old hat. I mean, honestly, has anybody 
never heard this before, that Jesus said we should love one another. Um, we think, now come on, Jesus, tell us something intriguing. Tell us something intellectually stimulating. Tell us something, how about a theological controversy, Jesus? Maybe something about that thousand-year reign of yours or speaking in tongues or whatever. We can easily be distracted from what matters most by questions and curiosities that are of value. But this morning, have you been distracted from keeping Jesus' new command? Let's say that there's regime change in America and it becomes a crime to love the church. That's, that's where they draw the line. It's a crime to love the church and the investigators call witnesses against you and it's people in this room, people from North Wake. They wonder, would anyone testify against you? Would there be enough evidence for you to get in trouble for loving the church? Let's just be honest, it's really hard to love the church an hour on Sunday morning. You know, it's just hard. But Peter's distraction and Jesus' teaching aren't wholly disconnected, I don't think, because Jesus is clear here. Peter's going to fail him, and he's going to fail him three times in the next 12 hours. And at that point, Peter is going to need to be on the receiving end of this command. And so will all the rest of the disciples who are about to run away. They all failed. We all have failed. And the love of the church is still for us. It's for the undeserving. It's especially for us in our failures and our sins. It's not an accident that Jesus' teaching on how we must love one another is bracketed by the prediction of Judas' betrayal on the front end and the prediction of Peter's denials on the back end and Jesus washing both their feet in the middle. This is clearly a love that is for the undeserving. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So, how do we then love like Jesus? Um, let me just say, it's not principally by trying harder, right? Um, simply redoubling our efforts to be a more loving Christian may be more of a recipe for frustration than anything. Um, but John gives us a clue in his commentary that he wrote on this passage in 1 John 4 when he simply says this, we love because he first loved us. God and his love for us is the source of our love for one another. It's not just our example. And so to love as Christ, we must know the love of Christ in ever deeper and more meaningful ways ourselves. And that, that happens by reflecting on the love of God for you in his word. Okay? This is how we grasp it. This is how we get a picture of what it's like to be loved by God. You should read about it. You should meditate on the love of God. You should reflect on it. You should go to Bible Gateway or wherever you go and you should type in love 
in the Bible and see what it pulls up and you should think about the love of God. Um, for me, I, I had a great uh, experience this last year just reading slowly and reflecting and writing in my journal about the love of God, the steadfast love of God, it's called in the Psalms. Started with Psalm 1, went all the way to 150 over a, a, a probably six months or so and just thought about how is it that God loves me so steadfastly? And if you want if you want to cheat and you want help with that, there's a wonderful book called Inexpressible by Michael Card, and he's done the study for you. It's right at the center of his book on the steadfast love of God is a study on what the Psalms teach you about the way God loves his people. Um, so we grasp the love of God for us um, and we're fueled to love others by the way we grasp it in his word and we grow in love by prayer. So during this season of Lent, it's common, uh, a common tradition for people to give up something. They might give up chocolate or TV or coffee or whatever. They might give up something. And so what I have given up is none of your business. Um, but but when, I, when I'm mindful of the thing I'm given up, I quote this verse, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love that I may rejoice and be glad all my days. Okay. And so I use that multiple times a day now. I am praying that I would know the soul-satisfying love of God instead of this little thing that I'm not doing that I thought would satisfy me, right? Um, you don't have to do it that way. You can simply attach a verse like that to some daily task. It could be your toothbrushing verse or your um, TV... Uh, holding the TV remote verse before you turn the TV on. You pray that you would be satisfied in God, which is not a bad thing to pray before you turn on the TV. Since growing love for God is first of all God's work and a response to God's love for us, um, prayer is essential, right? Don't try this without prayer. Okay. And so during this season of Lent, Maybe we could together as a church family take this little verse where Jesus says, my new command for you is to love one another. And we could pray every day that we would grow in loving for one another as we love, as we learn the love of Christ for us. But we do grow by the word and by prayer, but we do also grow by training. We, we grow by training ourselves to love. This is different, I think, than simply trying because it is prayerfully saying yes to opportunities to put love into practice on a regular basis, especially for God's people here. This is really what Sunday morning service opportunities are about at North Wake. They're a training ground. It's how you get better at loving the church, right? Uh, it's not just to keep the lights on and the bells running and the machine going here. It's tremendously useful for our church and it serves really helpfully, but the main thing it does is it trains you to love the church. Um, and so we have this study serve rhythm that we'll be re reinitiating in the next little bit where you, you get to take one of our amazing adult classes for six months during the second hour. And then the other six months, you find some way to serve in the church and there'll be sign-up opportunities and you study and you serve and you are training yourself to love God's word and to love God's people. Trit's um, training you how to wash feet and love like Jesus. So what I'd like for us to do is close our time with prayer 
and I'm going to guide you through two, two big questions as we pray. So let's pray, and we'll think about the love of God and loving, for one, loving one another together. So Jesus, we come to you now as your people, and uh, we have just heard your command to us. And so we bow before you now to consider our response. Are you willing to obey Jesus' new command to love one another as he has loved you? Are you willing to grow in loving this church and her people? This morning, will you say yes to that? To loving the church more in obedience to your Lord? And what is your next step in growing and loving the church more? In embracing God's love for you in word and in prayer? In training your soul to gladly serve the bride of Christ here at Northway? What is your next step in growing and loving the church the way Jesus loves her? For in love, Jesus says to us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another.